shoot the Netherlands and the UK a text and say, you up? Welcome to the Euro What, episode 164 for the week of July 25th, 2022. I'm Mike McComb, and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Hey, Mike. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. And this week, we'll be asking the question, host country where? And we have an answer to that. Thank you to everybody at the EBU who didn't drop this five seconds after we record. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that's what happened. That's definitely what happened. Uh, we're definitely not recording this as a backup <laughs> having seen the being like finally we can be with the Zeitgeist. Giving us 12 hours notice was quite sporting of them and I look forward to future announcements for the 2023 season. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh but yeah, that is the big news right now. The UK has formally accepted the invitation to host the 2023 contest. The bidding process for which city in the UK will host the contest begins this week. The press release that the EBU dropped mentioned 16 cities that have already informally expressed interest in hosting next year. I have a feeling that list is going to grow a little bit between now and whenever the bids are due. Yeah, the UK seems excited about this. They seem very excited about this, but it's a very difficult needle to thread. Because these circumstances, like, it, it's not great. Like, this this is a very tragic situation. I think in terms of threading the needle, Sam Ryder released a video today that I think just nails it tone-wise. Hey friends, just a couple thoughts. It's Ukraine's party. We're just inviting them to throw it at our house. I know how much it meant to Kalush and the Ukrainian delegation that Eurovision would be held at home in Ukraine next year. And I'm not the only one whose heart is heavy knowing that that can't be the case at this moment in time but what i would love to say to anyone watching this from ukraine is that we know how to throw a party here in the uk and our excitement is outshone only by our focus on that one sole objective to hold space and be on hand to help wherever needed to host an event that celebrates ukrainian culture history and music and to stand in solidarity with the rest of the globe shining a unified light He is a great ambassador for Eurovision in the UK, particularly with this situation. Yes, I think equating it to a party that Ukraine is throwing, and it just happens to be at the UK's house, is the perfect analogy for this. And uh, it has me really excited because Ukrainians know how to party. So (laughs) yes, yeah, I'm just, I'm really happy that in both the press release and the statements around it is that it's being made very clear that no, this is still going to be the Ukraine show. Ukraine automatically gets into the final. That had been kind of an open question about what, but if it's not in Ukraine, does that does this happen? And the answer is yes, it does. Also, Ukraine's broadcaster UA PBC, they are going to be very involved in the production. The hope is to have Ukrainian aspects to the production and making this more of a co-production instead of the BBC with special guest Ukraine. We're still waiting on dates for things and other news of that sort. In terms of when the host city will be announced, 
unless there's already been some behind the scenes conversations happening. Just looking at the previous two bid processes, they were both about three months each with Italy last year. The process started in early July and the announcement was made in October. So on that timeline, yeah, we're probably looking more towards early November. Hopefully it'll be a little yeah, bit sooner. Yeah, hopefully it will be a little bit more straightforward. I don't know. What are we going to get this time instead of just an animation of a slowly rotating pizza with the Eurovision logo on top? I forgot about that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh I don't know, something with Big Ben. Although I I can't believe that London is actually going to be in the running. So I have a feeling it won't necessarily be a London-based landmark, if it's going to be a landmark at all. Yeah. You know, steak and kidney pie. I really hope that the UK continues to treat this as an opportunity to show us different areas of the country. They could easily do that with the postcards, with the selection of the host city. A lot has changed since the last time that they have hosted, just technologically speaking. It's going to be quite different than the 1998 show. Yeah, we won't be talking about this this new exciting thing called televoting. Yes, the internet. What is it? So- <laughs> I just remember very confidently stating at the top of last episode that it was the delightful part of the year where there's no Eurovision news. And all of the news stood up and turned to be like, I am Spartacus. Yeah, yeah. I tried to edit around that as much as I could, but... <laughs> but oops, it's my fault, everybody. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I guess one of the big items, which is still kind of a question mark at this point, is Israel selected slash publicly expressed their interest in having Noah Carell as their artist for next year. Yeah, and this was the one where I'm like, wow, literally hours after our episode was live, Israel was like, we've chosen our artist. I'm like, okay, is this a real account? And then I realized it was the Eurovision account retweeting it. And I was like, oh, this is happening. Yeah, I recall seeing a tweet from Can that was a photo of the conference room where they were going to be talking about the candidates. I was not expecting there to be like a result so quickly after that photo was posted. And she hasn't confirmed yet that she's doing Eurovision. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it was like a couple days later where I'm just like, I feel like at least on the Israeli side, things often leak. So I was trying to figure out if this was trying to get in front of a leak for once. But no, I think somebody just hit send on the tweet and got real excited. It's nice that Can is kind of back to their 2019 form. Welcome back, everybody. So <laughs> I love mess. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So we will see what will come of this. They've got plenty of time to get things finalized. <laughs> I believe Yeah, my, I believe my official response to seeing the news initially was just like, Can, it is the middle of July. Go to bed. And as, as things have progressed, there's going to be a fun asterisk under the Israel section of the Eurovision 2023 <laughs> Wikipedia page. I mean, it's already getting so built out. And as you said, it's still July. So. Yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that I absolutely had put on our episode last time and then was like, eh, it's not really doing a thing. And I haven't really seen any official sources talk about it, but... Armenia's entry from this year is breaking through the global Spotify charts like the Kool-Aid man in a toilet paper factory. And really good for her. Good for Yeah, good for Rosalind. And again, I like the level of research I did on this last time when I saw it was happening was I went to the TikTok website because I am an elder millennial. (laughs) I do not have the app on my phone and was just like, okay, let's take a look at this audio clip. And it is the it's like a sped up version of the song. Apparently, there's a snap pack that has five different versions of the song. And yeah, one is called High and Fast, one is called Low and Slow. And is this, what is it called, Nightcore? Is it kind of in that category? 
It is Nightcore adjacent. Thank you for knowing that I absolutely Googled. You know, me, you know me so well because as soon as this happened, I was like, is this a Nightcore version? Is a Nightcore Eurovision song finally happening on TikTok? This is higher and faster, but I listened to an actual Nightcore version of this, and that one's even higher and even faster. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so if like Nightcore, I believe, is like 1.7 times speed, this is like maybe a 1.3, 1.4. Okay, all right. Yeah, we're just sort of twiddling the knob on like how high and fast to make the song and just looking at the audience for approval. As we record this, Snap is number seven on the global viral 50 chart. I checked the US chart, still hasn't shown up on there yet, but Spotify has a pop rising chart, which I'm not sure if that one is personalized to your algorithm in any sort of way, but it's the second track on there right behind Billie Eilish's latest. So yeah, she's getting some spotlight and I'm not surprised. No, no. Like like, when I heard this song, I'm like, this is, this feels like a song that would get picked up by TikTok. Even though it finished in 20th at the grand final, like that doesn't matter and really Mm -hmm. good for her. So congrats. And we will keep an eye on this. I have a feeling this is not the end of the snap story. Emmy nominations are here. Yes, the Emmy nominations came out the same week that our last episode dropped, and the American Song Contest got a nomination for Outstanding Lighting Design. Yeah, I was scrolling through the full list of nominations because I wanted to see how many things Severance had gotten. As I was scrolling through trying to see just like how many production design things it had been nominated for, had the virtual version of just sort of screeching my tires as I scrolled down through this. I was like, oh, hey, I recognize that show. I think the lighting was fine, so congrats. Yeah, the other nominees in the category are America's Got Talent, Dancing with the Stars, The Voice, and The Masked Singer. I think it is within the Variety and Live Special categories. The ceremony is in September, so we will see what happens with that. And then, yeah, there is one last big piece of news, which is very ASC adjacent. Eurovision Latin America was announced. I feel like every week we have a new expansion. It's going to be the same production company that did the American Song Contest. It, the pr- production company has been renamed Voxovation. And yeah, so Christopher Bjorkman is going to be involved in the process. And they're ta- in talks with RTVE, Spain's broadcaster, to uh, see if they this could possibly be a co-production or like some sort of like consultancy happening there. The actual details of the contest are still getting finalized. Like we're also still waiting on the Canadian song contest and what those details are going to look like. But yeah, th- this side of the Atlantic is going to have a lot of Eurovision-ish representation. So that's pretty neat. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. <laughs> yeah, like I'm intrigued. I'm just like, can you guys just talk to the one festival with El Monstro? Could that just like, what if that's like the official Latin American wing? If <laughs> Oh, if they could borrow El Monstro from Viña del Mar, that would be amazing. But <laughs> just, just like what I want from a Latin American Eurovision is a Telemundo experience. Yes. Oh, goodness. Yes. And who knows? This could end up leading to it being like the like America's version of Eurovision, where it's like Canada and the United States and Mexico and South America. So like all of the countries on in this hemisphere getting to compete instead of it being kind of segmented off the way that it's currently set up. So yes. yeah, that'll be a fun one to watch and really looking forward to the details of that one as they develop. I feel like right now they are trying to figure out for Eurovision Latin America, host country where? 
Yes. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. First, I want to give a shout out to Melissa, who suggested this topic. She was someone who endured the American Song Contest alongside with us over on our Patreon. If you want to check out those episodes, we're at patreon.com slash eurowhat. We will probably be talking about the Latin American Contest and the Canadian Contest or however the scheduling ends up working out for those things. And if we will actually watch them. But yeah, that, that would be happening over on that side. Looking at the history of when Eurovision has had to figure out its own mechanics, particularly like where the host country is going to be for a given year, it's been a pretty interesting dive. I mean, that that topic is front of mind this year. So I thought it would be interesting to dig into the other times where the winning country was not necessarily the host country the following year. The 2023 contest will be the ninth time that this sort of setup has happened. The first instance of this was all the way back in 1957 for the second Eurovision Song Contest. The first one was hosted in Switzerland and won by Switzerland. And yeah, they were not interested in hosting it again, (laughs) even with only six countries participating and a dozen songs in play. It's still a major production. They did not want to have to take on that burden again. Since this was the first time that Eurovision was happening, they were also just trying to figure out the longevity of it. Is it always going to be hosted in Switzerland? Maybe other countries would want to host it. So you mm-hmm. kind of want to just make sure you're not setting up precedents. You don't like early. if this is the second time you're doing it, you don't want to set the precedent that this just happens in Switzerland every year. The second Eurovision was hosted in West Germany. They offered to host after a Switzerland's broadcaster declined. This is When the rules were still being finalized in the 56 contest, it was six countries and a dozen songs. This time, each country has just one song. The jury vote's going to be public. It's not going to be this weird behind doors thing where it's just like, oh, Switzerland won. Sure. You could have up to two people on stage. So, yeah, still figuring out that aspect of it. And there was no time limit on the entries, but like three minutes, three and a half minutes was the suggested length. Uh, The UK, which was making their debut at this contest, their song was a minute 53 and was the shortest (laughs) song ever at the contest up until 2015 with Finland's entry. Italy had the longest song, surprise prize, Mm -hmm. Della Mia Chitarra by Nunzio Gallo came in at just over five minutes. The suggestion of 3.30, not really acknowledged. For future contests, it's just like, no, really, it's three minutes. And uh, I think I think that may have been a good choice. But the winner was the Netherlands with a song that ran for four minutes, 32 seconds. One of the other fun things about this contest, Germany's entry was written by Ralph Siegel. Oh, that name rings a bell. <laughs> yes. Not that Ralph Siegel. It was his dad. But I don't know. They but saw that. There's yeah. more of them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that note and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. I mean, that makes sense, but. If you said it was the like Ralph Siegel that we know and Ralph Siegel, just of yeah. course, he's been around since time immemorial. <laughs> yep. So <laughs> he just pops out a new Eurovision song every couple of years. We we have figured out how to pronounce his true name backwards, and thus he's ba- banished to the Forbidden Zone for now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 1957, still figuring things out, but a lot of the decisions that they made then have kind of still carried over even to today. So that's pretty neat. In 1958, this was the first time that the previous winner hosted. That wasn't the intention at this point. The UK was supposed to host. The plan at this point was 
each of the broadcasters would kind of do a rotation or make bids to the EBU and the EBU would select the broadcaster. BBC had submitted a bid and the plan was for them to host, but there were some disagreements with various unions and that kind of forced the BBC to drop their bid because they just weren't able to commit to the dates and any of the other agreements that really required union representation. It reached a point where ultimately the UK didn't even participate in 1958. Oh, wow. So Netherlands stepped in, okay, we can host. And that is where it really kind of started the tradition of having the previous winner host the contest. Probably from a logistics standpoint, this is a much easier way of going about it than having bids that fall through. Than just having like a bid process or a rotation because, yeah, things can pop up. Netherlands won the 1959 contest, so they were going to host in 1960. Netherlands was just like, you know, we just did this. Could we not? That is kind of one of the complications at this point in the history. It's not a big pool of contestants. If you have a dozen countries, there's a pretty good Mm -hmm. chance that you could win again. And with this format of selecting a host, there is a really strong possibility we could end up hosting this multiple times in a row. And that's just going to break the budget of any broadcaster. Yes. So the UK subbed in for the Netherlands, possibly as a makeup for 1958 being like, oh, hey, you stepped in for us. We can step in for you. Also, it was a case that UK finished second in 1959, so they were asked as the runner-up. Another nice precedent of, hey, if the winner can't host, we should follow up with the runner-up. In 1963, it was another situation where the supposed host country had won too many times previously. This time it was France. They won in 62, but they had hosted in 59 and in 1961. And yeah, they wanted a break. Monaco and Luxembourg, who did come in second and third, they had declined hosting. So UK, they finished in fifth, but since everybody ahead of them had declined hosting, they were just like, sure, we can do this again. They had also just opened up the BBC Studio Center, which is one of the biggest TV studios in the world, and they wanted to show that off. Mm -hmm. So BBC steps in again and handles the hosting. Eurovision being used to show off the latest in broadcast technology. Exactly. Yeah, and then for the rest of the 60s, no real problems. The winners are able to host the following year. There's less duplication of winners because the contest is growing, so there's a bigger pool of contestants to possibly win. In 1970, it's dealing with the aftermath of the 1969 tie, where the four countries, Spain, United Kingdom, France, and Netherlands, all won the contest. (laughs) And yeah, rather than having it split between all four countries, which I would love to see what that conversation would have been like. (laughs) I'm just thinking about how we still sometimes struggle to get the feed from a country. Now, in 2022, much less... 1970. That was not going to be an option. So it came down to a vote among the membership. Officially, all four had the chance of hosting, but Spain, they hosted in 1969. So we don't necessarily have to have it in Spain again. UK, they hosted in 1968. And also, like, They've hosted a lot already because they've been subbing in for so many people. So it really was a choice between France and the Netherlands. Netherlands won that vote. This contest was a bit of a disaster just because there were a number of countries that boycotted the contest because of the ridiculousness of there being a tie the previous year. It was just kind of a rough production 
all around as a result. In 1972, the UK subbed in for Monaco. Monaco had won the 1971 contest. But Monaco is a very tiny country, and they did not have an appropriate sized venue. They didn't have the resources to do the contest. They didn't really have the technical capability to host the contest. Monaco is not prepared for this to be an option. Right. So they had asked the UK to step in once again. In this case, the contest was held in Scotland. And so far, it's the only time that the contest has been held in Scotland. It may change in the coming year. Mm-hmm. One article that I read said that this may have been to show some respect to Lulu, who won in 1969. She is Scottish. So yeah, an, op- an opportunity to show off her part of the United Kingdom. So I kind of hope that's true. I think that's a neat idea. Especially if you are kind of quietly becoming one of the go-to nations for if stuff happens. Why not use that as an opportunity to show the different areas? Because like, I could easily see Scotland hosting next year or Manchester. So in 1972, Luxembourg won. Luxembourg hosts in 1973. Luxembourg won. They didn't want to host it again. <laughs> Luxembourg, much like Monaco, is a microstate. Right. They did have an appropriate venue, but they also had a lot of security concerns uh, because this was right after the 1972 Olympics, which were in Munich, and there were the terrorist attacks there. I believe it was also one of the first times that Israel participated in the contest. So tensions were real high at that point. Oh, boy. Yeah, to the point where people were instructed not to give standing ovations because if they stood too long, they may have been taken out by a sniper. Like, it was that level of security. (laughs) So, yeah, light entertainment programming for all. So, in 1974, UK stepped in again and subbed in for Luxembourg. Spain did finish second in 1973. That was the year that Eris II was their entry. Spain did not want to host. So, UK, which finished in third, they were given the opportunity to host. And thus we got Le Wombles. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> oh, the 1974 contest. It's still one of my favorites. So the last time that a country needed to step in for another broadcaster was in 1980. This was after Israel had pulled the double. You could kind of understand why a lot of countries don't really want to do that anymore. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they hosted the 1979 contest after winning in 1978. And yeah, it was a major financial burden. IBA, uh, Israel's former broadcaster that was part of the Eurovision family, they did not have the budget to host again. Unfortunately, given the timeline that was set, the contest was scheduled on Israel's Remembrance Day, which is like one of the major holidays in Israel. And They were not able to participate. So 1980 was so far the only year where the winning country was not able to defend their title at the contest. Uh, Right. And I think we like touched upon what happened after because we've talked about the 1979 contest many years ago at this point before Eurovision again was a thing. That was one thing I remember looking up at the time was just like, so what happens after this? And this was the one year I knew about was that Israel is unable to host the following year. Well, just A, Israel is reluctant to host. And then by the time that this gets sorted out, when Eurovision happens, it is a time of year that Israel cannot compete. Spain came in second in 1979, but they declined to host. And UK was also just, yeah, we can't do that this year. So... 
the EBU was kind of scrambling. The Netherlands was able to step in to offer to host. There was one quote that I found that, according to Yair Lepid, son of Tommy Lepid, who was then the IBA director general, Lepid called his counterpart at NOS, Netherlands broadcaster, and convinced him to take the, quote, undesired honor when he realized that the extra cost could paralyze the regular work of the IBA. I'm just like, oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's just like this was going to be a major undertaking. Well, yeah, and we have seen that Eurovision is part of Eurovision again. Like the one thing I remember from it is that it is in the same location as the last time the Netherlands hosted and is using largely the same stage stuff as the last time. Because they're like, we have this in storage. They dusted all of that off. They did not do postcards. The event is pretty much conducted entirely in Dutch. Yeah, the only parts that weren't in Dutch were when representatives from each country introduced their act and spoke in their country's language. It was a Dutch show. I have in my notes here, budget, 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 all in caps. Yeah, the actual budget of the 1980 contest came in at about $725,000. That's about $2.6 million today. And if you look at Turin's budget for this year's contest, they're expecting that to come in at about $16 million. So yeah, they cut as many corners as they possibly could in the 1980 contest. Granted, it's a bit of apples and oranges. Like Morocco did not have LED screens as part of their presentation of their entry. That is going to save you a lot of money. Since that was the last time that this issue came up, it's been over 40 years since we've had to ask the question, so what country is actually going to host next year's contest? That's kind of mind-blowing that's that large of a gap. Considering like how much Europe has changed in that time, particularly in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, like you have all of Eastern Europe now part of the experience and the breakup of Czechoslovakia, the breakup of Yugoslavia. I mean, there, there's a lot of change that has happened. And I think one of the things that I found most surprising about this is that it's kind of a myth that second place automatically gets you the offer to host again. It seems like it's much less formal than I think the fandom realizes. As far as I can tell, it's not official policy or officially in the rules anywhere, at least nothing in the public-facing documentation. The rules for Eurovision Song Contest don't even really get into the hosting aspect of things. This seems like it's something that is specifically for the reference group and like in the like you have to log into the reference group section of the EBU website if you want the actual nitty gritty specs of what happens in this particular situation. If anything, the tradition seems to be shoot the Netherlands and the UK broadcasters a text and say you up just say you up <laughs> <laughs> it it has been the UK and the Netherlands that have stepped in in all of these situations and really had we not just spent 2 years in Rotterdam i think Netherlands would be in the conversation right now as potential backup host it's weird that things played out the way they did at for the 2022 contest which is like oh okay the UK's in second place and they're usually the go to for hosting when this situation comes up. So yeah, that's kind of just like a happy accident, I think. <laughs> it's kismet. Just like a perfect confluence of events has led to this moment where we could be seeing host country wear being answered by the UK yet again. 
that's kind of where we're at right now with the history of substitute teachers at the Eurovision Song Contest. I don't think the UK is going to just wheel in a VCR and pop in Voyage of the Mimi or anything like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but yeah, so that that's all I've got on this. Any questions? I just assume that there was way more of that just because in the initial years, you're trying to figure out, okay, what are the rules? And in, in many ways, we're still trying to figure out what are the rules because this hasn't happened since 1980. It makes perfect sense that there's like nothing in the bylaws officially about what happens if the host nation or what who, what happens if what should be the host nation can't host. It's going to have to be a very ad hoc thing. Yeah. And I think it's also a slightly different situation because it's not a case of the broadcaster being like, oh, yeah, we really just don't want to host again. It's the EBU saying, oh, no, you are not allowed to host. Saying this is not safe. We are not going to do this. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. And I mean, like this overall structure of the contest has changed. I mean, going back to the 1980 thing about the budget coming in like so low, part of that is also it was only one show. It's not three shows over the course of two weeks. Uh, that that needs like its own little like media encampment. It is such a different experience today. A lot of new mechanics are, are going to be figured out this year. So yeah, if you are into bylaws adjustments, I think 2023 is going to be your year. So get get excited. Can we get like the new PDF of the reference group bylaws and just turn on track changes? Actually, if we could get the old copy of the PDF, because I was trying to track that down and could not find it. <laughs> Just as someone who loves to read procedural documentation, let me add it. Let me see the let me see the rules. Verily, I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Euro What. I second that motion. Thank you for listening. The Euro What podcast is hosted by Mike McComb, that's me, and Ben Smith. That's me. You can follow the Euro What on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app of your choice. If you'd like to support the show, we are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash eurowhat. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at eurowhat.com. If you'd like to contact us, we're at eurowhat on Twitter, or you can email eurowhatpodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the eurowhat, if this was host country where, we'll be asking, first Eurovision how, 